Mastermind Agent is proud to present the Interview of the Month Club. Top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Tom Rubens with Trio Realtors in Westchester, Ohio. He works both the Cincinnati-Dayton, Ohio market and the Chicago-Illinois market. Last year, he closed 317 transactions with a total sales volume of $21 million. His average sales price was $66,000, of which 10% were buyers and 90% were sellers. He operates a team with 14 members, one REO office manager, one offers coordinator, one transaction coordinator, one billing coordinator, one utility and data entry coordinator, one property preservation coordinator, two property inspectors, four buyer agents, one team leader, and one principal. Tom Rubens is the principal of Team Trio. He has been an agent for six years. Tom sells REO properties for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, several banks, and asset managers. Tom is an entrepreneur. He has a colorful background, including options trader, minor league basketball team co-owner, minor league baseball team co-owner, sports team broker, and real estate investor. Tom fell into the REO business during his first month in the business when he was introduced to a Fannie Mae asset manager. He was in the right place at the right time. Tom jumped at the chance to list Fannie Mae properties and never looked back. For the first six months, Tom worked 60 to 80 hour weeks and earned a whopping $1,000. Luckily, Tom is a quick learner. Business improved and he started earning a lot more. Tom discovered the fastest way to increase his client base is to attend industry conferences. While there, he networks with asset managers and other REO agents. The conferences are so productive that his goal is to attend 12 conferences per year. Tom attributes a big part of his success to his team. After flying solo and learning all the REO tasks, he assembled a team of professionals to help him service the vast business his networking brings in. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Tom. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Tom, before we get into what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you were doing before you got into real estate. I got out of college and I immediately worked on the options exchange in Chicago and ultimately became a a trader and I traded options and commodities for about 15 years. And after that, I put together a group of investors. I've always been relatively entrepreneurial, or I should say very entrepreneurial. And uh, after trading, I put together a group of investors, and we bought a minor league basketball team. And I ran that for a few years, and after that, I 
sold my interest in basketball and bought a couple minor league baseball teams with investors and sold that and stayed in sports for a while in the minor league baseball field, brokering teams. Then I moved to Dayton, Ohio and gradually started buying real estate uh, as an investor. And ultimately, uh, my brilliant idea was just to save money on commissions. I thought I would get my real estate license and instantly realized that I'd rather be a real estate agent than an investor. At that time, which was around 2005 or so, the real estate market in Dayton was already beginning to collapse. And being an investor was just no fun at all at that time. Prices were dropping too fast to make any kind of money. Tom, what skills did you learn in the prior job environment that helped you in your career today? Well, Mike, I would say one thing I learned in sports was that it was important to, to assemble a team. And I don't mean the team on the field or the team on the court. I mean the team that operates behind the scenes. And in my real estate business, that has been absolutely essential. There's no way that I could sell 315, 320 properties a year by myself. So I would say the thing that I brought from my previous business was the ability to put together and motivate a team. And that is what's kept me successful in real estate. We're going to come back to team building in a little bit, but how quickly did you bring on your first team member? I was late to the party with that. I tried to do this all by myself for the first five or six months, really just out of necessity because I wasn't making any money and I just couldn't justify bringing in any any staff. But ultimately, I, I probably should have done it a little sooner. I spent the first six months that I got into really doing REO, doing everything by myself. When you got your start in the real estate, do you think you had a fast start or a slow start? I was very fortunate. I had a fast start for a couple of reasons. I was very experienced as an investor, and I had primarily purchased bank-owned or at least distressed properties. So I was familiar with that market. I would say within 30 days of getting my license, I ran into someone who uh, introduced me to uh, Fannie Mae, introduced me to an, an asset manager in Fann at Fannie Mae. And that changed everything. I completely changed my focus and decided that I wanted to really just focus on REO and no other part of real estate. And it was a great decision because I really enjoy it and uh, it fits my personality type. So you went into REO right out of the gate? Right. I'd say by the time I'd been in the business for six months, I already had, I don't know, 30 or 35 properties with Fannie. Where's your market? My initial market was Cincinnati and Dayton. It actually started in Cincinnati and I grew it into Dayton. And that was pretty much it for the first five years or so. What I realized over time is that there were two ways to really increase my business. One, get more clients, which is obvious. And two, increase my geography. So the obvious one of getting more clients is, is a perpetual process that all of us as uh, real estate agents, whether we're in REO or any other uh, segment of the business, we're always looking for more clients. But one thing that I figured I was able to do was also increase the geography that I served. And so I'm from Chicago. I know that market pretty well. And so if, what I decided to do was, in addition to the other piece, I decided to, uh, to open up an office in Chicago. And that's been a, a, a big help to our business because uh, we, we're still able to do most of the back office work is done centrally in our Ohio office, but all of the groundwork obviously is done in Chicago. And that has helped us grow 
in a way that we couldn't have grown if we were just staying in, in Ohio. How far apart are your markets? How much distance is there between Chicago and Cincinnati and Dayton? Dayton and Cincinnati are very close. Dayton Metro and the Cincinnati Metro overlap. So many people who live in one market work in the other. I happen to live in Dayton, and my primary office is in Cincinnati. The bulk of my properties have always been in Cincinnati, and my staff is fairly well divided geographically, specifically so that we can serve our entire market. Our office is centrally located, but most of us are driving between 15 and 40 minutes to get to the office from all different directions so that we can service the entire area. Plus, we have two full-time property inspectors that do nothing but drive around and inspect properties. That's the Cincinnati market, Cincinnati-Dayton market. Chicago is a different animal. We have one office. It is centrally located. We service the northern Chicago suburbs and the northern part of the city of Chicago. We pretty much go from the city of Chicago all the way north to the Wisconsin border. That's a pretty wide area, and for that reason, I have full-time property inspectors that cover all of that all that geography on a regular basis. The people on the ground are not the same people in Cincinnati as they are in Chicago. Correct, correct. How far is that distance? Can you drive that or do you have to fly it? I would prefer to drive whenever possible. I'm, I'm not a real fan of airports. So yeah, it's a, it's a simple drive for me. It's about five hours from door to door. Generally, I will leave Dayton early Thursday morning and by noon in Chicago, I'm inspecting properties. And I'm there till Sunday. And then I turn around and come back. Describe your current real estate market. Cincinnati and Dayton are two actually distinct markets. Dayton is, is much more troubled at this point than Cincinnati. Our average price is probably 15 or 20% lower in Dayton than it is in Cincinnati. Our time on the market is probably 15 or 20% longer in Dayton. And the job situation is a little more dire, I would say, in Dayton than it is in Cincinnati. So our prices in Cincinnati are, while they aren't going up, they aren't going down quite as rapidly as they are in Dayton. Do you think that the prices are moving up? Are they moving down? Are they staying flat? No, we are not seeing flat or any kind of rally yet. We are definitely still seeing properties uh, on the downswing. I haven't seen any kind of stabilization in this market yet, and really don't expect it uh, in the near term. Are you seeing more retail sales or REO short sales in the overall market? I'm seeing a proliferation of short sales, certainly. Not to the degree that, that I expected. I expected we'd see far more short sales than we really have. And I, I think that's more a function of the abilities of banks at this point to service those short sales. And I think as they become better equipped to service short sales, we will see a dramatic rise in that here in this market. But for now, it's a significant piece of the market, but nowhere near what REO is. At this point, my guess would be that REO is right around 28 to 30% of the market. You got into the REO business right away. Is that your niche? Absolutely. That's where I feel most comfortable. I enjoy uh, servicing that niche. I'm not particularly interested in, in traditional real estate. I, I enjoy the, the, the type of work that, that REO brings because it's much more business-oriented. I mean, what I do uh, on a daily basis is manage a team of people. 
I don't generally show property. My contacts are not Mr. and Mrs. Smith. My contacts are my asset managers and my investors. And within our office, we have the tasks and jobs divided in such a way that we all focus fairly narrowly on one piece of the business. And I, and I enjoy that. I really enjoy coming up with systems that are effective and managing a team. I enjoy that much more than driving around showing houses. How long have you been in this business? Well, I've been in the real estate business for probably 12 or 13 years, but only five or six of that has been as an agent. Prior to becoming licensed, I was a real estate investor. You mentioned that you bumped into someone in Fannie Mae in the first 30 days. When you first set out with your license, did you intend to go directly into REO? No. When I first got my license, I didn't really have any intention of going to REO or even really having any kind of real estate career at all. My intention was to save money on commissions because I was buying a lot of property as an investor. So uh, I just thought, well, great, I'll get my license and, and save that 3% aside. I had no idea that within just a couple of months, I would completely change my focus, sell all of my investment properties, and become an REO agent. You said you sold all your investment properties. Was that to raise capital to get into this REO business? No, that was because I was really bearish on real estate. No, I sold all my, uh, my, my properties because there was just, at that point, it was very difficult to make money as, a, as an investor unless you had a buy and hold strategy. And even then, that clearly wasn't working because buy and hold doesn't work in a, unless you want to buy and hold for 30 years. And I just didn't have that, you know, that, long, that long-range vision. You know, buy and hold in the late 90s and early 2000s here in the Dayton-Cincinnati market, that strategy was, it was flawed because prices kept going down. A lot of people are wondering how they would get into the REO business. Tell us how you entered the business. Let's break it down and get into the details. You said you bumped into somebody that connected you with someone in Fannie Mae. How did that work? I was exceedingly fortunate. I was at a meeting of real estate agents. I ran into a couple agents who were doing REO at the time. I said, wow, that sounds really interesting. And it, it, it dovetails perfectly with my own area of expertise, which is investment property. So we started talking, and it turned out that Fannie Mae was looking for agents in this area at the time. And so I was put in touch with the asset manager that was handling the Cincinnati area. We hit it off, and she gave me a couple properties just to see if I could you know, deliver. And I, I did, and pretty soon they just, uh, I, I just became one of their regular agents in the market. Now, understand that they have probably... I don't know, 10 or 15 agents in the Dayton-Cincinnati markets. How big is Cincinnati-Dayton? What's the population? Ouch. You asked me a question. I don't really know the answer <laughs> to. <laughs> That's a weakness of mine. I really don't. I'm not a statistical analyst, really. I just focus on my, you know, I kind of keep my nose to the ground and just focus on what my responsibilities are and what my clients' needs are. Had you sold a property before you got your first assignment with Fannie Mae? Uh, no. When I got my first assignment from Fannie Mae, I was, I was still in buying investment property, but I had never touched an REO property as a seller. I had only purchased them as a, as a buyer, as an investor. But you hadn't acted as a broker representing a buyer or seller. Is that correct? Well, I had represented myself, but I was not a, a fully functioning real estate agent. 
I didn't take the traditional route of, you know, going to MLS classes and, you know, learning how to sit at a kitchen table with a homeowner. My approach was much more boots on the ground, evaluating value of properties. So the part of that that was relevant to the REO business is that doing BPOs was very easy for me because I've been doing my own effectively for years. Because the first thing that an asset manager is going to ask you to do is do BPOs. I was totally ready for that because I knew the value in my market. I knew what properties were worth and I knew which direction they were traveling in. I knew which areas were good buys and which areas you wanted to stay away from. So when I got my first BPO assignments, I was ready for that. This asset manager, it seemed like they took a flyer on you. They took a chance. How did you structure it so they said, yeah, I'm going to take a chance on Tom. I know he's new, but I'm going to take a chance on him. Yes, I think they did to some extent take a chance on me. They knew that I knew the market, and I think that's very important. I knew not only the general market in the Dayton-Cincinnati area, but I specifically knew the bank-owned market, which is different than, than just driving throughout nice suburbs and knowing which subdivision has the best schools, because that's not where most of our properties are. So I had a very intimate knowledge of the product. What I didn't have was a knowledge of the process of being an REO agent, the process that was necessary to be a successful REO agent. And that I had to learn on the fly. Because that, at that time, there wasn't anybody to teach me. Let me take that back. At that time, there were people that could teach me, but I wasn't smart enough to ask the question. I wasn't smart enough to go to them and say, look, I'm breaking into this business. I know you're successful at it. Would you mind taking the time and just giving me a few pointers? Once I did that, once I, I got up the courage to ask that question, I was amazed at how uh, free most of the other agents in the marketplace were with information. It's a very, in, in the Dayton-Cincinnati market, it's a very cohesive group of REO agents. Of course, there are those that don't interact much with the group, but for the most part, I can pick up the phone and call any one of 15 or 20 successful REO agents in this market and ask them a question. Because we all, no matter how long we've been doing it, we will have questions occasionally. We'll get a new client and we'll say, geez, I don't know how this client wants this particular situation handled. I'll just call one of their current agents and say, hey, Mike, it's Tom Rubens. You know, I just picked up uh, one of your clients. I know you're working with them too. Can you tell me how they handle X, Y, and Z? It's a very non-threatening conversation. We all know that this business, the assets do get passed around frequently. I would say the best agents in this market are the ones that get along well with other REO agents. So once I started asking questions of my contemporaries, my business began to solidify and my understanding of it grew exponentially. Do you all have a group meeting? Do you get together in a mastermind and talk? Or is this more informal where you're just calling each other now and again to chat about different opportunities? In Cincinnati and Dayton, it's very informal. As far as I know, there really isn't a group that gets together on a regular basis. But in Chicago, I am part of a mastermind group of REO agents. And it has been very helpful to me as I enter that market. We get together once a month. We talk to each other frequently on the phone. In both markets, I would say that it's 
it's a very cohesive group. If I drive by one of your properties and I see that your sign is down or looks like someone threw a rock through the window, I'm going to put your sign up and I'm going to call you and say, Mike, 123 Main Street looks like it's been compromised. You might want to send an inspector out here right away. And for the most part, I would say that goes on in, in, in both markets that I serve. How did you find the group of agents, the more formal mastermind in Chicago? The mastermind in Chicago came out of Fannie Mae. It's a group of all of us who do Fannie Mae properties in Chicago. We also represent other clients, but one thing that unites us is that we are all Fannie agents. Did you tap into that intentionally? Did you go and search for that, or did someone point it out to you? How did you find that group? I was very fortunate. That group called me and asked me if I would like to join, and I was ecstatic at the notion. I make it a point to make it to those meetings every month. Did you already have Fannie Mae listings in the market before you were invited to that meeting? Yes, I did. The informal group in Dayton of other REO agents, how did you start those relationships? Did you just pick up the phone and start calling? Did people start calling you? How did that come together? It was just an evolutionary process. The primary clients, Fannie and Freddie, come into our market fairly frequently or I should say regularly. So there are chances for us to interact when Fannie or Freddie will have a group meeting of all of their agents in the area. So we will get together at that time. And, and out of those meetings comes a certain collegiality and we then begin to contact each other on a case-by-case basis. These clubs, I'll call it a club or a group of people, they've come together because they already are listing REO properties. In other words, could somebody enter one of these meetings if they are not currently in the REO market or listing and selling REO properties? That would be pretty difficult because there'd be no, there's no, that's a good question. There's just really no forum for that. Uh, I don't think it's a bad idea, but I don't know of any situation like that in any of the markets that I serve. Let's go back and talk about, you got in with Fannie Mae, How quickly did you start receiving assignments? Oh, within about two weeks. But now understand that an assignment doesn't mean much in the beginning. You know, uh, I'll get an email saying uh, you've been assigned uh, 123 Main Street, and and the first thing we want you to do is go and check occupancy. So from the time I get a request for an occupancy check till I get a listing, could be anywhere from 30 to 45 days to 9 or 10 months or more depending on whether the property is occupied, whether the title is clear. There are a number of factors that will determine whether or not I'm going to get a property in a shorter or long period of time. Let's step back one step before that. What was the process of signing up with Fannie Mae? Most clients have a rather tedious process of signing up, and Fannie and Freddie are no different. And so you have to establish that you have insurance. You have to give them all your broker information. You have to you know, obviously send them copies of your license. They do background checks. I believe they do credit checks. That's pretty much it. I mean, I'm sure they do a lot of stuff behind the scenes that I don't know about, but those are the, the things that, that are pretty obvious uh, throughout the application process. Okay. Was that application all done online or was it manual? It was all done online. Are you working with any other banks or entities? Yes. Over the years, I've worked with a number of different asset management companies. Now, as it happens, asset management companies ebb and flow. Some of them, you know, there are new ones entering the industry all the time. Some don't make it for very long. Some relationships are longer than others. 
I originally chose to focus my attention on attracting major clients. And the reason I did that was because if I've got two major clients, I know exactly what they want and how they want me to do it. If I've got, let's just say, 10 minor to mid-major clients, I've got 10 different operating styles that I have to learn and deal with. And for me, the way for, that I felt that we could be most effective was to pick a couple clients that we could really serve effectively. One of the things that I do as a broker is protect my asset manager as much as possible. And one way that I protect my asset manager is by not calling him or her all the time. The more intimately I know what they want, the easier it is for me to just do it and and let them know what I've done rather than call them all the time and say, what do you want me to do about this problem or what do you want me to do about that problem? And that's one of the difficult things when a new agent, and we were all new at one time, when we first enter the business, we, we tend to overburden our asset managers because we really don't know what they want and we want to make sure we do it right. I mean, our heart's in the right place. We want to make sure that we serve them as effectively as possible. So every situation is a new situation when you are just getting into REO. So my intention from the beginning was to have a couple major clients that I could service and service well. Now, as the times have changed, I would say over the last year or two, I'm really, in addition to those major clients, I'm focusing on attracting new, smaller clients as well because the marketplace is changing and I have to change with it. Who were the majors? Who do you consider a major client? Well, in our market, I would say the three biggest clients would be Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and HUD. And are you working with all three? No, I work with Fannie and Freddie. And I'm working on, on getting HUD. You started with Fannie. How quickly did you add Freddie Mac? I was fortunate that after I got Fannie, no one else asked me to, to handle their business for a while. Because I would have said yes, and I wouldn't have been able to handle it. I had my hands full with 30 to 40 Fannie assets. And it wasn't until I started hiring a staff that I could have even considered going out and looking for more business. So I was lucky that no one asked me to, to do their business because I would have gotten it and then I would have lost it for incompetence. I had handled Fannie for about a year or so before I took on Freddie. And again, that was just a, I was very fortunate. I was at a, the five-star conference. And I was talking to one of my Fannie asset managers who said to me, hey, do you do Freddie? And I said, well, no, but I'd love to. And she said, well, there, why don't I introduce you to this guy right over here? He, he's uh, one of the big shots at Freddie, and, and we'll see if we can get you on. And three months later, I had uh, Freddie business. So a personal connection. Absolutely. It was a personal connection. And she did that because we had been serving her well. By that time, I had a team, and we were doing a good job for her. And this is mostly, I've found this to be true throughout the industry. If you do a good job for one client, it's a very incestuous group. So they all know each other. And if they have a, an agent that, or a broker that they really like, they have no qualms about recommending you to somebody else. They want their friends to be successful also. So, yes, that was exactly how I got Freddie, and it was great. It's handled differently. It's a totally different account. But by the time I got it, I was ready for it. I had a staff, and we were ready to handle it. One thing that I would clearly caution new agents about is biting off more than you can chew. Probably one of the smartest things you can say to an asset manager is, you know what, I really appreciate that you're giving me these additional properties, but right now 
I'm at my limit. I can't handle anymore and, and still be effective. But as soon as I get staff in place to increase my business, I will let you know. You'd be amazed how much they're going to respect that because they rarely hear it. Most agents and brokers will just take everything they can get until it buries them. It's, it's almost like they'll grow until they fail rather than growing to succeed. So I was fortunate because I didn't have a chance to make that mistake. No one offered me more business until I was ready for it. Did you early on tell other banks that you were not ready to bite off more than you could chew? Basically, as an entrepreneur, I've always believed that you have to be ready for the changes in the market, and you have to be ready to handle more business. So I, rather than, and this was a business decision that certainly cost me money in the beginning, but once I understood the business, I believed that I had to ramp up before I could ask for more business. So I would say even today, we're overstaffed. I am generally overstaffed because I want to be ready when more business comes in. And I would rather that we be overstaffed and ready for any deluge that might come than understaffed and have to play catch-up if a big client comes up and wants to hand me some business. You've mentioned that you are starting to expand your client base. You've got Freddie and Fannie. Who else are you working with? We work with a number of outsourcers. We work with AssetLink, RMS. We've worked with Atlas and Green River. Probably half a dozen others over time. But basically, what I'm doing now is focusing my efforts on increasing our business. We are now ready to handle a lot more business. And part of that is because over the past year, each of our clients has been affected by the robo-signing and by the extra time that it now takes to, to finalize, to finish the foreclosure process. So whereas last year at this time, we probably had about 250 to 300 assets we have less than 200 now. And it's not that our clients aren't happy with us. It's just that the properties aren't coming through the pipeline as rapidly as they used to. And they're taking longer to sell. They're taking far longer to sell. So by, by that, I mean from the day I get an asset to the day I can actually list it, that timeline has increased so dramatically. The entire cycle of a property when I first got into this business might have been less than six months from the day I got it to the day it was closed. Well, that cycle has dramatically increased, and, and uh, I often have properties for nine months or more before they actually sell. So that's more expensive for you? Far more expensive to carry a property now than it used to because I'm carrying it for a longer time, and it's not just paying the utilities and all that kind of stuff. It's that I have to manage those properties. We have to inspect our properties once a week. So if you've got a property and you're going to have that property for six months, that's roughly 25 inspections. Well, now if I'm going to have that property, the same property, which will sell for the same price, but I've got it for maybe 40 inspections, that alone is a significant difference to my bottom line. Particularly because on our Ohio properties, our average sale price is $60,000. If I've got to carry a property for six months or a year, that average sale price is still going to be about the same. So my cost just increased, but my revenue did not. Commission stayed the same. The commission did not go up with that longer term. No. If anything, the commissions over the years have gone down. What do you attribute that to? Is, is it because of increased competition, more agents getting involved? I think it's a lot of things. Every business, whether it's our clients or you know, shoe salesmen, shoe stores, I mean, it, it, it's costing more and more to do business. And 
businessmen are looking for ways to cut costs. So one good way to cut costs when you are distributing REO property is to reduce the commission of your agents because almost all of them will continue to take your property. You've mentioned that the supply that's coming through the pipeline of REO properties has been decreasing, and yet you're ramping up your operation to do more. Do you think that the reduction in supply is temporary, or what are you seeing that's causing you to ramp up? you think you're going to take a larger market share? What are you predicting out there? I think for the last year or so, just about everyone in the industry has said, oh, there's this huge shadow inventory, and it's about to just come down and everybody's going to get more property. And I I think that has been the conventional wisdom. It's proven false. I tend to believe now that what we're seeing, it's just going to be a longer cycle. Yes, I believe there is a lot of shadow inventory, but I don't think we're going to get hit with a tsunami. I think it's going to be a very gradual increase in the amount of property and in the amount of time it takes to sell that property. So what I'm gearing up for is an increase in business, but not through some shadow inventory getting dumped on us, but by getting more accounts. How many accounts do you currently have? Some of them are less active than others. In terms of active accounts, like active, in addition to Fannie and Freddie, active asset management companies that are using us, probably about five or six right now. But then we may have five or six that we think aren't using us anymore, and tomorrow they may send us a property. It just it depends. They may be dormant for a while, and all of a sudden get a ton of stuff in our area. How are you expanding those relationships? How are you adding asset managers to your prospect list? The way I add business is twofold. One, I go to a lot of conferences, not just the big ones, whether it's Rio Mac or Five Star or any of those conferences, but I go to smaller conferences as well where there are less likely to be real estate agents there. For example, I'll go to conferences where it's all about mortgage brokers or all about banks, because if there's going to be a lot of mortgage brokers, there's going to be a lot of banks. If there's going to be a lot of banks, there are going to be a lot of potential clients for me. And I'll go there and offer my expertise as an REO agent when there are very few REO agents around. So it's kind of an interesting approach. It's kind of a backdoor approach. Yes, you can go to these huge conferences where asset managers are there, but they're they're running from all the brokers and agents who who are trying to corral them to get more business. It's great for an education because there's you know great opportunities to learn how to do your business and and I believe in getting and keep getting and keeping updated on your education as an REO agent, but I don't know that those are the best places these days to get business. I think that if you go to a conference that is not targeted to REO agents but is targeted to the industry, you're likely to find industry experts there who are going to be happy to find an agent that is really expanding his knowledge or her knowledge. That has worked for me. And also coaching. I have been working with Corcoran Coaching for a while to help me increase my business all around, to increase my ability as an entrepreneur, to increase my skills as a team leader, and also to help me reach out to asset managers and clients that that I may not even know. Are you meeting asset managers and other people in the REO business through your coaching? Yes, I am. I definitely am. And now that I'm gravitating towards coaching myself, for the last year or so, I've been a coaching client. But moving forward, I'm going to be spending a significant amount of my time coaching other agents to do what I do. So as part of that, I attend a lot of conferences and I, I just you know meet a lot of people in the industry through my coaching. It sounds like the majority of your business is generated through relationships, through networking. 
Yes, it is. A big part of this job is networking. There's no way that you can increase your business as an REO agent without just putting yourself out there on a regular basis and meeting as many people as possible that are experts in the field. Do you have a formal plan to make that happen? Are you trying to attend a certain number of conferences? I wouldn't say that I have a formal plan, but my intention for the next 12 months is to attend at least 12 conferences. Do you have any type of formal plan or system after you make that first contact? Do you start with a letter or is there a certain dialogue that you use actually at the point of contact with a new client? What's your process? Does it just kind of come together or have you formalized this thing? I use a fairly soft sell. I do not want to go up to an asset manager and say, hey, Mike, my name is Tom Rubens. I service the Cincinnati, Dayton, and Chicago markets, and I'd love to get your business. First of all, they're inundated by other people who are doing the same thing, and I just don't find that that works too well. I take a soft sell. I take an interest in them, who they are, what their needs are. And, you know, I may see them at a conference today, and it may be, you know, three or four months before I see them again. And, but when I see them again, it's, hey, Mike, how you doing? And I'm going to ask about their business. I'm going to be asking about their kids. And over time, they're going to start asking me about my life. And they're going to see, wow, this guy attends all these conferences. He's constantly getting educated. Even though he's an experienced agent, he still is ramping up his education. Let's try him. Let's give him a property. I don't go up to them and beg for business because I just don't think that's appropriate. Now, I frequently follow up. First time I meet them, I will send them a handwritten note. I mean, I know it sounds kind of quaint, but I like to do that. I think it's a much more personal thing to do than just send an email. Certainly, I wouldn't send out a mass email. But I'll send them a note, and I might follow up, you know, just, you know, hey, it was great meeting you at the conference. I hope you had a safe trip back, blah, blah, blah. And then I might follow that up 30 days later with an email, just check in, see how you're doing. All's well here in my world, something like that. So that when I see them the next time at the conference, it's a little softer. It's not, again, me going up and reminding them who I am. They'll probably remember. Hopefully they'll remember me from something I did or said. And so it may take, you know, it's, it's a slow approach. It may take six, nine months for this stuff to bear fruit, but that's okay. I'm going to be in this business for a long time. So if it takes a little while to get a client, I'm okay with that. What you did not do is you did not go out and get an email list of all the asset managers in your area and blast out an email and or a, a letter, and make phone calls to them, cold calling them. You did not take that approach. Is that correct? Definitely did not take that approach because I put myself in the shoes of the asset manager and I know a lot of asset managers. I'm not saying it will never work and if that's your style, go ahead and try it, but it's not going to work for me. It's not who I am. It's not how I do my daily life. So it, it, I, I would be trying to put on someone else's clothes if I did that. How many assets do you think that you're receiving each month? At this point, we're getting anywhere from... 25 to 30 assets a month. That's less than we used to be getting, but it's better than a couple of months ago. You know, we were getting 15 or 20. I mean, it was just really trickling in, and it's the, the volume is beginning to pick up. So I would say our capacity, we wouldn't touch our capacity until we get to about 50 a month, and then we'd need to hire some new people. But by the time we get to the low 40s, we're already going to be adding people. What was the height at the height when it was the most voluminous? How many assets were you receiving a month? 
we were getting in the 40s. We were getting in the low 40s a month. Now, that's how many assignments are coming in. These things stay around for a while. How many total listings are you carrying right now? Right now, I'm carrying less than 200. Let me backtrack. You asked me how many listings, but the real question is how many assignments? Because an assignment to me is the value. They're not always going to be listed. We will have frequently 30 to 40% of our assets are in unable to market status for whatever reason. Either they, they're going through a valuation process or they're still occupied. So in terms of assignments, we're still under 200 and our intention is to be closer to 300 within about six months. So you're currently just under 200 assignments going for 300. You mentioned that not all those properties are on the market. Of the 200 or just under 200, how many properties are on the market as listings? Right now, we have about 75 listed across all of our markets. We've got another 35 that are pending, and the rest of our assignments are either in pre-marketing status or they're occupied, or for any other reason, they're not on the market. Do the banks limit the number of listings or assignments that you can have at any given time? Most of them do, but that's a very flexible number. When I started, I think Fannie limited me to 35, and they certainly don't have us at that limit now. I'm generally seeing that the larger agents with their larger clients are probably around the 100 to 150 per client. Let's just say that you carried 200 assets. And if you were selling each of those assets in an average of six months, well, that would mean that you'd be selling 400 properties a year. Well, now it's definitely blown way past six months. Many of our assets were carrying around nine months. And when I got into the business, it was closer to four months. So if at four months, you're turning over your inventory three times a year, at six months, you're turning it over twice a year, and at nine months, you're turning it over less than twice a year, you can see how that dramatically impacts your bottom line if you have a limited number of assets that you're going to get, which is why we're out there now soliciting more business, looking for more business. If you were to look at your business right now and try to break out the percentage of business that you were receiving from each of your clients... What percentage of your business, for instance, do you think comes from Fannie Mae? Fannie and Freddie each are probably 35 to 40% of our business each. And I would like to see that ratio closer to 25% each so that we have a broader base. So it's pretty even between Fannie and Freddie right now? In my business, it is, but that varies from agent to agent. The remainder, the other 20% or so, that's from these other asset managers, other banks? Yes. Why would Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, an asset manager, a bank, why would they hire you? What is your competitive advantage? I would say that our competitive advantage is our systems and our team. We have the ability to handle a very high volume of REOs. At this point, we can say that we're very experienced. The way our team is run is we are really specialized. I have one person whose sole job is to take in offers. All she does is deal with offers. Then I have another person, and her primary job is contract to closing. So from the moment we have an accepted contract until the moment a property closes, there is one person that handles that. I think that kind of continuity and the kind of job 
division is really important to the success of an REO team. And I think that that's one of the things that we that we sell about ourselves. You know, we have one person her whose sole job, for example, is reimbursements. Because if I've seen, you know, one thing happen most consistently with new REO agents is that they lose money on reimbursements because they don't file them properly. So we can't afford to do that. So we have one person that's all she does is reimbursement. We have another person whose sole job or whose primary job is dealing with utility companies. Because we're turning on and turning off utilities and all over the place. And you know how long that takes if you just when you move your house and, and having to turn it on and turn it off, it's it's a nightmare dealing with these utilities. And so we've got one person that's one of her primary focuses. What we're doing over time now is we're beginning to outsource some of our tasks. That, for example, is a task that we are beginning to outsource right now because it's more cost effective for me to outsource that particular task than it is to have somebody do it here in our offices and when I could have her doing something that's more important, that requires more talent. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealG TV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Describe your team to us by position or title and their responsibilities. You start to make a list there. It sounds like we've gotten through four people. Who else is on the team? I have one person whose primary job is dealing with property preservation. So by that I mean the property inspectors report to her on a daily basis. She gives them their tasks for the day, what properties they need to go to, and they report back through our computer system. They report back to what they found at each individual property. She also deals with contractors because at any given time we may have anywhere from 15 to 30 or 40 properties that are being repaired. And we've got to monitor that repair process. So she will be dealing with the contractors to make sure that they are where they're supposed to be in the project. And then at the very same time, she's got to communicate that information back to the asset managers and let them know. One of the people that I've already described, an additional piece of her job is data entry. Because we do a lot of BPOs for our clients. And we have to have someone entering the data. Now we have Another person, actually that's myself in many cases, who pulls the comps for every BPO and then all the data gets entered and then they come back to either me or one of the key members of my team and we then enter the adjustments and we enter the comments. And one of the two of us QCs every BPO that goes out of here. In addition to those team members, I have another team member who is really my partner and his job is to manage all of our buyer's agents. Because a key piece to this is having a team of buyer's agents that can market your properties so that they sell as quickly as possible for the most amount of money. That is our goal with our clients. So to do that effectively, we need a team of really good buyer's agents with boots on the ground every day selling our properties, as well as selling other properties. And so I have one person that's in charge of that team. Tom, what do you do for the team? I manage the team. I distribute the job assignments. I do a lot of the QC, particularly with our BPOs, 
that's the one area that I really feel that it's important that I keep my fingers on because that's where it all starts. The BPO is the first thing that we're asked for, and it's the one thing that follows a property throughout its life cycle. And I want to make sure that, that we are giving our clients the best information we possibly can. So I generally QC every BPO. Obviously, if I'm out of town, I have a person that does that in my absence. And she's been with me for three years, so she has a pretty good idea of what I want. And in many cases, she does it better than I do. I should get back to that because one important thing is obviously we all, you know, I, I travel to a lot of conferences. Everybody takes vacations. They get sick. They get pregnant. They leave. You know, their kids get sick. It's important that in any team this size, because we're, we're fairly lean, but it's important that in any team this size that uh, we have people that can play a number of different positions. You know, I'd like to say that we have a number of really great utility infielders here who can go from job to job. In addition to which, we have, you know, formal job descriptions written out so that if something happens and someone is really going to be gone for an extended period of time and we need to hire and train a new person while the old person is no longer here, we're able to do that. So you do have formal job descriptions. Do they have to sign off on that when they get employed? Is there a contract between you and each of these folks? That job description emanates from the person in the position. The person that handles all of our offers, for example, one of her assignments in that position is to update constantly her job description because things change. You know, a, a client may require that we submit an offer one way, and then six months from now, they may decide they want to submit it another way. Well, she's got to change that in her job description so that if something happens to her, whoever's taking her place has a very clear understanding of what's expected on the part of our clients. And again, to me, that's a key thing for people who are assembling teams. You have to assemble a team that is able to handle multitasks, not just multitasking, but multitasks because they have to be able to go from one desk to another. Your client isn't going to be too sympathetic if you say more than once, oh, well, Maria had to take a week off because she was sick. Well, okay, fine. I don't really care if Maria's sick. I, you can't close your office because Maria got sick. You know, someone's got to be able to pick up that slack, which again is why we are generally, and I would say intentionally, overstaffed so that we can handle that kind of emergency or we can handle the normal things that happen in, in the course of life. How do you facilitate that cross-training? Actually, it's somewhat organic in that generally a person starts with us at the bottom. And historically, the bottom has been uh, the person who has to call all the utility companies. That's what we consider the bottom of the totem pole here. Well, so once you've learned that job, as either we increase business or you know staff needs change, we're going to put you in a job that you would either already somewhat skilled and prepared to handle or something that you would like to do. And then we'll fill in from the bottom. I rarely, over the years, gone out and looked for someone to fill up an upper level position. I like to take people from within and grow them into those positions so that they already know what everyone else is doing underneath them. There's no one in my office that's doing a job that I haven't already done because I started out doing everything. And I think that trained me well. And I believe in that sort of training for all of us. So yeah, we don't bring people in from the outside and just say, okay, you're all of a sudden going to be in charge of offers or of contract closing. 
you know, our culture is such that it's got to get pretty well ingrained before you have a position of that kind of responsibility. What's the office structure? Are all these people sitting next to one another, hearing what's going on in the the other's space? Are they learning through osmosis, or are they split up and across an office space? Mike, that is a great question. And one of the things that when I'm talking to people, whether I'm coaching them or whether people are just calling me, asking me how to learn the business, it's vitally important that all those people be able to see each other as well as that whoever is supervising them. So we have an office that sort of looks like a bullpen. There are three people that can make eye contact with each other at all times, and then there's one other person that can make contact with each of those people without leaving their desk. Are there walls up between them, half walls or no walls at all? The one person that sort of supervises that team does have a wall and doors, but her door is almost always open, and when her door is open, by moving her chair a little bit, she can make eye contact with any one of those people at any time. The other people are all in the same office. And then our bookkeeper is in a separate office because she doesn't really need to have you know, constant contact. Uh, but a separate office within the same office, she's just down the hall a little bit. And our buyer's agents are in, her, in a different section. But our buyer's agents are frequently not in the office anyway. But when they are, they're in their own little bullpen area. Your main staff, are they sitting at desks that are pushed up against one another? Are they in cubicles? Uh, Are they pushed up against the wall? How are they facing? We have a fairly large sort of gracious space. So no, they're not pushed up against each other. They each have, it's a fairly large room and they each have their own little area with their own file cabinets, their own desk, their own phones, their own computers. They share copiers, they share a scanner, and they share the main files. If I were learning the business right now, I would pay big money if an experienced agent would let me spend a day in his office and then come to my office and help me set it up. I mean, to me, that's worth thousands and thousands of dollars. Did you do that? I didn't, but I attempted to. I remember offering a woman who is a coach, I offered her $10,000 or $8,000 to come to my office for one day and let me come to her office for a day. And it never happened just because she couldn't fit me in her schedule. That's how busy she was. And that's one of the things that, not at those same dollar levels, but that's one of the things I do as a coach now because I think that is vital. It's not that you can't do it on your own. You certainly can. But it saves so much time, and time is money around here. So if I were starting out right now, I would pay someone that was experienced to let me shadow him or her for a day and then ask that person to come to my office and tell me what we need to do differently. That would have sped up my growth process uh, exponentially. Talking about your team, how do you pay them? The buyer's agents are paid on commission. Everybody else is paid on a salary, plus they get bonuses based on how many properties we close. And I think it's important, at least for our team, that everybody share in those bonuses. So, for example, the person that is dealing with utilities, she gets the same bonus that the person that's doing contract closing gets based on how many properties we close a month. And the reason is everybody has a key job. Everybody's job is important. I want everybody pulling in the same direction, pulling for each other and being willing to chip in. And so they all get the same bonus based on whatever number of properties we close a month. Is that bonus a dollar amount? Is it a percentage? And is it individual or in a pool? The set dollar amount that they each get per month based on how many properties we closed. 
So everybody gets an extra $10 for each property we close this month. That's the concept. Something like that, yeah. Are the people on your team licensed or not? Most of my team is licensed, and those who are not licensed are in the process of getting their license. Obviously, if they're going to be dealing with the public, they have to be licensed. But even like the person that I have that deals with our our property inspectors and our property preservation team and our contractors, she's licensed. I think it's important that, that as many people in your office be licensed as possible. I mean, this is, we're in real estate here. It's important that you understand the product that we're selling and the laws and the, the re regulations that regulate it. For the people that come to your team who are not licensed, do you assist them to become licensed? Do you participate in their licensing fees? Yes, I will pay for them to get their license. I'll pay 100% of their licensing fees. They put in the time and you'll put up the fee. Exactly. If you're willing to take the course and do the work, I'll pay for it. And for those employees that I have that are licensed, we pay all of their dues and, and whatnot. Do you prefer to hire experienced or inexperienced agents? That depends on the position. In terms of our buyer's agents, we generally take experienced agents. But in terms of the people that are in the office, I guess if I go back and look at my pattern, depends on the position. depends on how closely involved they are with agents and asset managers. The closer they are to agents and asset managers, the more experience is required. So that means pretty much everybody now that is coming in is coming in at a position that's sort of behind that. So I don't mind if they don't have a license. I just expect them to, to work towards getting one almost immediately. Who did you hire first? Well, that was a while ago. I would say that it was almost simultaneous. Within certainly weeks of each other, I hired a buyer's agent and an office manager. If I had it to do over again, I would hire an office manager first, almost as soon as I got the business. I believe that you have to expect that you're not going to make money in the first few months that you're in the business, and in fact, that you're going to net lose money. Because if you want to be ready to handle assets in volume, you can't go out and get a client and say, oh, now I'm going to go hire a staff, because you're just not going to get anybody. Just to give you an example, when I first got into this business, I mentioned to you before that I was a very fortuitous introduction to Fannie Mae led me to my first account. The first asset that I got from Fannie was in January of that year. I worked 60 to 80 hour weeks every week. I cashed my first check in June, and it was for $1,000. So I effectively worked for six months for $1,000. And actually, it was in April that I first hired someone. So I still hadn't even gotten a check. And my first employee was making more money than I was. Because she was at least getting a salary. I was getting nothing. But I had to do that. It's very rare that you can find a business that you can start up for no money. And this is a business. And if you, if you look at it any other way, you're likely to fail. But if you accept that this is just like starting any business, if you start a clothing store, well, you have to buy inventory and you have to pay rent and you have to hire people to sell the clothes before you even open the door. And that's the same thing in REO. I had to be staffed to handle the business. And I had to believe within every fiber of my being, I had to believe that this was going to work and that I was going to do well enough to get business and that that business was going to pay me and my staff. Uh, and if you don't have that confidence and if you don't have that belief, don't even bother to, 
to try getting into REO because it's you're just going to get buried. Within a few months of being in the business, you could see things coming through the pipeline, right? You were receiving assignments. You knew the business had potential to start paying off. Yes, and I was willing to take the risk that I might be wrong. As I said, I started in January. In April, I hired someone because I knew, okay, we've got all these properties. We haven't closed anything yet, but we have all these properties. They will eventually close, and I will be able to pay everybody. Right now, I'm just paying them out of my pocket. I shouldn't say everybody. It was one person. I didn't pay the buyer's agent. He was just on commission. If someone were going to try to visualize growing an REO team from scratch, who would they hire first, second, third, fourth? You mentioned uh, office manager first. Yeah, I would hire an office manager first to stay in the office and field phone calls. And that person would definitely have to be licensed. I'd also be hiring a buyer's agent, but you don't really have to hire a buyer's agent per se. You just have to identify a buyer's agent, someone who's going to handle all the buyer calls that you get. Because once you start getting busy, there's just no way that you have the time. What I was doing in the beginning was I was doing all the property inspections, all the BPOs, all the contact with the property preservation people and the asset managers. And I get tired just telling you that I used to do that. That was a lot of work. I had no social life, no real life for like six months. So having said that, you know, the first buyer's agent I hired is now my partner and my broker because we formed our own brokerage. And uh, he was the one that had the time to take his broker's test. So he's a broker. I tend to keep people that are good, and he's good. And he now handles all of our buyer's agents as well as his own. He's a significant piece of his own business that is not REO-related that is just regular real estate. When you find good people, pay them well and keep them because it's a lot cheaper to keep somebody and pay them well than it is to keep hiring new people at a, at a low rate. You like to promote internally. Yeah. The second most senior person I have has been with me for, I think, close to four years. And she started out calling utility companies, doing all the jobs that no one else wanted to do. And she's now the senior person in our office. The entire REO department reports to her, and then she reports to me. So going down that list of how somebody would build out a staff, we've got office manager, then a buyer agent. Who would come in next? Billing coordinator. Because as you start to get properties, you know, you've got 35 or 40 properties maybe. You're starting your business, and so you're paying utilities on those properties. There's a tight time frame during which you have to not only pay that bill, but then submit it for reimbursement. If you don't submit it for reimbursement in a timely manner, most clients will just not pay. And it's not that they don't think you made the payment, but that if you didn't do it in a timely manner, they're not going to pay you back. And uh, just about every REO agent you talk to can tell you about thousands of dollars he or she has lost by not submitting the bills in a proper fashion. So... We all learn early on, get burned a couple times at that, and you won't make that mistake again. Hire someone to pay your bills and to, to get reimbursements. Uh, who would come in next? Next would probably be, depending on how quickly you grow and how wide your geography is, you're going to have to hire property inspectors. Because if every property has to be inspected once a week and you've got 50 properties, that's 200 inspections a month. You've got to have somebody doing that. That person goes out, inspects the property, and then creates a report for the bank or the asset manager? Yep. And 
I don't even know if it was available at the time I started, but it's definitely widely available now. It's not a person that I would hire, but it's a system that I would hire. There are a number of different property management systems that you can buy. Some of them are internet-based. Some of them are on a disk format that you can load onto your computer. But it is essential that a new agent have a way to track all of his or her properties online. And we do that. And it's not an employee, but it's a system that we use that all of our employees tap into. So at any moment, you could ask me about 123 Main Street. I could pull that property up and I could see, and within seconds, I could see all of the photographs we've ever taken for that property. I could see where we are in the billing cycle. I could see, obviously, the status, whether it's listed, uh, pending, or sold. I can see all of the work that's ever been done on it and every comment that everyone has ever made on that particular property all in one location. I don't know how I managed. Well, I can tell you how I managed before I had it. I managed poorly. Now that I have a system like that, an asset manager doesn't need to call me. They can call any member of my team if I'm not around and say, okay, well, Tom's not here. What's going on with this property? And he or she will pull up that property and can give you a history of it from cradle to grave. What software system do you use? I'm actually right now in transition, but I have been using a company called REO Maestro. There are many out there. I think Taza is one we're trying out right now. We're probably going to switch to them, but there's eBrokerHouse. There is BrokerBrain. There are a number of different companies. You know, I don't have an axe to grind one or the other. I would definitely, if I were a new agent, call a couple agents that I knew and respected and ask them what they're using. Or in addition to that, when you attend a conference, you'll have a chance to meet many of them because they frequently have booths at the conferences. But it's an essential part of an REO office. And the system you're testing out now, what was that name? It's called Taza. How do you spell that? T-A-Z-A. I'm not the person that's handling that right now. We've been using REO Maestro for a while. I went to a conference and saw some of the competition. I brought that back to the office and I said, you guys investigate. Tell me what you would like to use. We've got to use something that meets everybody's needs in a cost-effective manner. What they're testing now is Taza. So you've delegated that responsibility to choose it. I delegate as much as I possibly can because I hire good people. How do you find those people? That's a difficult process. And I would say one of the biggest challenges I have as a leader is finding and picking team members. What I do now is the hiring process is not a simple come in and interview with Tom. It's someone has to really meet all of us as well as our coaching staff. And we give them personality tests. We obviously check their references and make sure that this is what they really want as opposed to I need a job, you have a job, let's get together. No, we really need someone who is going to be with us long-term. I keep relearning the lesson that it's cheaper to keep good people than it is to pay people less and have turnover. Turnover is just one of the costliest parts of my business. Are you typically finding these new employees, new team members through your network, or are you putting ads out on Craigslist or the newspaper? How are you generating response for the position? Since we generally want people who have licenses, I'd say the pool of people that we are picking from is agents that are no longer doing the volume that they once were, but don't want to leave the business and have a passion for the business, or agents that are just tired. 
and are looking for someone that's got a system that works. You know, they know they like real estate, but their system isn't working. Well, our system obviously works. So sometimes they gravitate towards us. Whatever those guys are doing is working. Let me call them and see if they have any, any openings. You talked quite a bit about systems and effective systems. How did you create your systems? Did you write it all down in a book? Did you just do it by talking to people and educating them? What kind of system do you have in place? That's a two-part question. The first part is how did I create it? Trial and error. And lots of both. Lots of errors and lots of trials. And I'll give you one example. When I first got the Freddie Mac account, the regional area manager came to my office one day, which was great. I was really honored that he came, and, and I was looking forward to spending the day with him, and we were going to go visit some properties. So he comes into my office, and he said, Tom, let me see one of your files. So I you know, went to our file cabinet and pulled out a file on, on the properties that he and I were going to go visit that day. And I felt like I was pulling my pants down. He looked at me, and he said, Tom, your files are terrible. And, you know, rather than get defensive, I said, well, tell me why. Tell me what's wrong with them and how I can make them better. And he proceeded to tell me. He was absolutely right. What we were doing was not effective. And every year I see him at one conference or another, and I remind him of how he changed my filing system. And Anytime he wants to come back, we're still using the same filing system. So if he's got any new ideas, we'd love to have him back. I learned because he told me how to file. And every system I've got has come from similar trial and error. And I think you have to be, as a leader, you just have to be open to learning and accepting advice and suggestions. And sometimes it's going to come, it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be someone saying, Tom, your files are terrible. And you can't get defensive. You have to be open to wow, I'm sure he's just trying to help me and not trying to be mean. Let me learn from that. Okay, what do I need to do differently? So, I mean, every system we have is an improvement on the system we had before. How are you documenting your system? For example, we have a system that we've been using. I told you about Ario Maestro. And every single thing that happens on that property, every, okay, let's say today I get a phone call that property has been broken into. I'm going to call the asset manager or whoever's task it is to call the asset manager. The first thing they're going to do is call the asset manager. The second thing they're going to do is enter it in our database. Then someone's going to go out and repair that property. We're going to get a work order, and we're going to get a, a report that it's been repaired. That gets entered into the system. Every time someone goes out to take BPO photos, that gets entered into the system, into the same system, so that there's only one place that I have to go to find anything I need to know about a property. I can find the status of the property. I can find the history of the property. If you wanted to ask me what the average utility bill is at 123 Main Street, I can tell you. I can go to the system and tell you that. Have you created a checklist for how to resolve any issue that pops up? Well, I can't say that we have a checklist for any issue that pops up, but yes, as part of everybody's job description, it's going to tell them what they do in a certain situation. Okay, what do I do if a house is broken into? Or how do I handle cash for keys? Or where do I submit a BPO? Or what do I do when an occupant calls and says, because this will happen, what do I do when an occupant calls and says that my furnace broke? We've got answers to every one of those questions, and the people who handle that particular task have that in front of them. 
Is that what you said before they were documenting that somewhere? Are you talking about into this system or are they documenting the actual procedure? So if somebody had to step into their shoes, they'd know what to do. Both. The procedure is documented and the actual event is documented. Do you have a procedures book, some kind of book of checklists? Is it just in the knowledge base of the individual? How are you making sure that it's continuous if something were to happen to one of your people? Good question. That's part of the job description that we talked about. Within that job description is what you do in each of the cases that you mentioned. The goal is to not have all this information in the knowledge base of each individual person. Because if that's the only place it is, and that person quits or takes the day off or goes on vacation or gets sick, we're stuck. We can't live that way. We can't operate a business that way. So if anybody, including me, just decides to stop showing up for work, we have to be able to continue to operate seamlessly. And, and it's our systems that allow us to do that. Tom, you've got this large team. You've got all these people running around. I'm sure there are a lot of agents out there wondering, are you profitable? Yes, we are profitable, but certainly never as profitable as we'd like to be. And as our commission rates go down and our, our responsibilities go up, we are not as profitable as we once were. It's a difficult time to be an REO agent. Would you disclose what your profit margin is as a percentage of your revenues? That varies. And I can say that in my world, a goal would be 30 to 35%. Have you been able to hit that over the years? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I don't think we will hit that this year. That's fine, but you'll still be profitable. Yes. Yes. I enjoy what I do, but I wouldn't be doing it if it weren't profitable. Some people who want to get in the REO business may or may not realize there are costs involved in each individual property. What do you anticipate the cost of each assignment or listing that you get for your budgeting? You know, it's a good question, Mike, and I haven't broken it down to that extent because there are so many different elements, and I, I really haven't broken it down that way. What percentage would I attribute to rent for a property? Uh, what percentage would I attribute our own utility costs or the cost of money? We have, you know, at any given time, we may have, we've got thousands of dollars out in utility bills. So I can't give you a cost per property. I can say that we get a lot of properties where the total commission is $1,000. Well, in many cases, I would say those properties are loss leaders for us. We have to give that property the same amount of service and the same amount of attention that a property that might give us a seven dollars or $8,000 commission will give us. So the $1,000 properties, if I were looking at those on an income per property basis, I might say, I can't make money on these but I need those because if I didn't take those, I wouldn't get the bigger ones. They open the door. Right. You've mentioned a couple times that you've educated yourself. Is it mainly been through conferences or have you taken any kind of other formal classes or books that you've read? I've taken uh, quite a few classes. I've taken BPO classes. I've taken individual clients have their own classes that they sometimes require and other times request that we take. And also just talking to other people in the industry. I mean, I'm constantly talking and learning from other agents and, and, and other uh, industry veterans. If you were to move to a new market and you want to go into the REO business, what would you do first? You just moved into the Chicago market. I guess you could use that as a template. Well, I can tell you what I did, which might not be the same way that someone else would handle it, but I opened an office before I had any clients. I wanted to be ready if someone said, not if, when someone said, sure, Tom, we'd love to try you out. Where's your office? Well, I didn't want to say, well, I'll be getting one as soon as I get a client. 
So I had an office for six months before I got my first property. I was out soliciting business. But I said, you know, I could say and stay in integrity, we had an office. And we had a team because the team was and still is uh, to a large degree in Ohio. I think that's really a good question because I think moving into a new market for many agents is going to be how they're going to increase their business rather than getting more clients. You've already got a, t a group of clients that have identified and raised their hand and said, yes, I like the way you do business. Well, those are the places, people that you should be going to now and saying, well, look, you know what? I service uh, this market. How about if I started servicing another market, would you be interested in giving me business there? Well, they're more likely to say yes than someone that doesn't know you. That would be how I would be building my business in it and how I have built our business in another market is by starting with the clients that we already have that like us. Tom, what do you think is the biggest mistake you've made in the REO business? There are a couple of them. One of the biggest mistakes I ever made was early in my career, I was upset with a client who didn't reimburse me for a $900 trash out. And... I thought that they were treating me unfairly, and I said that I expected to be reimbursed, and I was adamant about it. And what I didn't realize at the time was that my asset manager had actually made a mistake. The asset manager had forgotten to submit this for reimbursement. It wasn't that we had done anything wrong, but the asset manager had made a mistake. And that particular asset manager you know, wasn't the kind of person that would ever admit her mistakes. So we came to sort of a stalemate, and I just demanded that I get reimbursed. So I got reimbursed and never got another property from that client. And if I had it to do over again, I probably would have been a better judge of that asset manager and realized that she had gotten herself in a bind, and the best thing I could do to keep that client was to help her out and pay the, the $900. So that was one mistake I made. Uh, other mistakes that I have made that have impacted me is that early on, we had quite a bit of turnover. And instead of hiring slowly, I would hire the first person that walked in the door because I just needed somebody right now. That strategy has backfired numerous times. And now we remain almost perpetually overstaffed so that I won't ever have to make that mistake again. Are there any errors or mistakes that you see new REO agents making that someone getting into the business should try to avoid? One mistake that I see new REO agents making is they overpromise and underdeliver. They promise their asset managers everything, and then they can't possibly deliver it because they have a, either they have a small team or it's beyond their scope of knowledge, and they figure that they'll just make up for it later. Or they'll say, yes, I can handle more business when I can't. Again, I would encourage new agents to say, look, I could only handle 20 properties right now. I've got 17. I appreciate that you just gave me five, but would you please take two of these back and assign them to somebody else? Because I want to make sure I can give you the best service I possibly can. And I can't do that if you give me more properties than I can handle. And another thing that I would suggest that agents do as they enter the business is get an education, whether it's through coaching or whether it's through uh, classes or at talking to other agents in the industry, or any combination thereof. Don't think that you know it all. Do the best you can to learn from people who are already doing it. Tell us about coaching. When you say coaching, what does that mean? What are you doing? 
I work for a company called Corcoran Coaching, and we coach real estate agents in all segments of the business, whether they're uh, residential agents or whether they're REO agents, whether they're brokers with big teams or uh, agents with no teams looking to grow. One of the things that I think is so essential to success in any business or in life is accountability. And I've found in my life that having an accountability partner has helped me overcome a lot of adversity. And so the first thing that I think a coach does is becomes an accountability partner for their client. So not only am I helping use the knowledge that I have to educate my clients, but I'm also a place where they can plant all their expectations and someone who's going to make sure that they are accountable for all the things that they've promised and all the things that they need to do to be successful. Particularly in this business, it's so essential. Like in, in, on the REO side, coaching is so important because there are just so many different places that REO agents can get tripped up. And it's important to have an expert that can not only help introduce you to new clients, which is a key piece of what we do, but as well as just tell you how to run your business, tell you how and show you how a successful business is run. So you're not talking about just coaching the people on your team. You're talking about coaching other agents uh, from around the nation to show them how to do what you're doing. Absolutely. We're in a great business. At this point, it's a very difficult industry. And I think most people, whether it's in real estate or any other business, would agree that it's important to get an education from people who have gone before you to learn how the best practices and how it can best be successful in this industry rather than just trying to make it up as you go along. So they'll speed up their learning curve. It'll speed up their learning curve and it'll maintain the ascent. They won't plateau. They'll just maintain this growth because they've got someone that knows that has been there before and knows how to guide them and hold them accountable. So you're coaching in addition to running your own operations, so you're actually experimenting in the field and coaching at the same time? Yes. I could only do that with an incredibly efficient team. I couldn't do that if I had to micromanage every step of the process. But over the years, I've now developed a team that really can swim without me. So it allows me the freedom to go out and help others learn to do what we do. Who's the ideal person for your coaching program? Who are you trying to bring into your fold? I would say the ideal coaching client is someone who is willing to learn, who's open to learn. So someone who thinks they already know everything and uh, is probably not a great coaching client. A great coaching client is someone who has a fervent desire to be successful, a willingness to work towards that success, and an openness to listen to guidance and take guidance. Would you be helping both inexperienced as well as experienced people? Oh, absolutely. If somebody wants to learn more about your coaching program, how would they do that? Is there a website they could go to? Yeah, they could go to CorcoranCoaching.com, C-O-R-C-O-R-A-N, Coaching.com. Tom, why do you think you've been so successful in the REO business? I think that my success has been due to good fortune in many ways. I've been fortunate enough to be introduced to some really wonderful people who have helped me in my career, have helped me by not just giving me business, but giving me guidance and helping me grow. And that's actually what I'd like to be able to give back through coaching. 
how big do you think that your business is going to get? I don't think there's any limit. I don't look at limits. I want to make sure that at all times, I don't grow beyond my ability to serve my clients effectively. Do you use uh, business plans? Oh, yeah. Every year we meet to determine what our goals are for the year, and we update those goals and monitor those goals monthly. So you write it up annually and you monitor it monthly? Technically, I monitor it daily because I review my goals on a daily basis. But in terms of as a team, we, we just, we're constantly evaluating our performance and looking for ways that we can improve. How do you keep control of your time? With great difficulty. I manage my time as best I can, and I manage it on a daily basis. So every morning I decide, I review what I need to get done that day, and, and I compare that with what my goals are and with what my my intentions are. Not just my daily intentions, but my intentions and goals for my life. So you keep a schedule. Have you outlined a perfect day, or do you just look at what is coming up for the day and try to structure it to work? That's a good question. With my coaching clients, I definitely do work with them to outline the ideal daily schedule. In fact, that's one of the things that we that we implement is an ideal daily schedule. And so for myself, yes, I do that as well. I sort of work it, I guess you might say, from the top down. I mean, I, I look at what my goals are in my life. As I plan my day, I'm going to be picking things from different elements of my life goals and making sure that I'm working towards reaching those goals on a daily basis. That doesn't mean I don't have mundane tasks, you know, like go to the cleaners and go get a garden hose. And those are on my daily task list. But in addition to that, if I have a goal of going to London, it may not be something that I'm working on today, but I'm going to be aware of that. And is there something that I could do today that could help me reach that goal any quicker? And I don't mean necessarily, although that could be making the reservation. It may be, what do I need to do to clear my schedule so that I have a week in November to go to London? And it may be April, but I could be working on that right now. Maybe I just need to do one thing. Check my calendar and see what conferences are taking place in November so that I know when in November I can go. How many hours do you work in a typical week? Well, interestingly enough, Mike, that number's going down. When I started in the business, it could easily be 60, 70 or more. And now... I am working hard on myself to make sure that that number doesn't go over 45. In some weeks, it's quite a bit less than that. The more successful I am, the fewer hours I'm going to be working because the more effective my team is, the less they need me. Tom, what drives you? What motivates me is creativity. I really enjoy the creative process of starting a business. Running a business is less exciting to me than starting one. That's why when, when I assemble a team, I assemble a team of people that can operate in my absence. I want to have as few tasks that are absolutely essential to be done by me and more tasks that can be done by others who are, in many cases, better suited to those particular tasks than I am. I think my skill is as a driver, as a leader, and as a creative force. You know, once we've got something going, I like figuring out ways to do it better, maybe a way to do it quicker or more cost efficiently. Then moving beyond that, I just love the inspiration process, the process of, okay, let's just start like from scratch. How, what, what can we do differently here 
whether it's do we need to start a new business that can complement what we have? Is it, is it a new arm of the business? Or is there a whole new business opportunity out there that we're not even seeing? So what drives me is the creative process within the business model of, of starting, operating, and successfully running businesses. If you are advising a brand new agent just getting into the business, what would you tell them to do first? Well, let me ask you a question. What are the agent's goals? Let's say that they want to do what you're doing and go into the REO business. So an agent that's brand new that wants to go into the REO business, has the agent ever done real estate before? No. Well, then what I would recommend that person do would be to learn about investment property, go to a couple conferences and learn about real estate as it's practiced within the REO field. And I would also encourage that person to learn how to, to just do the general steps that are required to be a traditional agent because we're all traditional agents to some extent. And you need to get your feet wet. You need to get practice at doing deals. You're not going to get that practice likely from an REO asset manager until you have some working knowledge of how to be a real estate agent. So even if your intention was to just be an REO agent, my suggestion would be to go work for a successful agent in a large brokerage or a small brokerage and learn from them. I mean, understand that you're competing. In, in an average year, I'm going to do 300 transactions. Most agents don't do 300 transactions in their career. So you just got to get out there and step up to the plate. And the best way to do that is to go out and do regular business for a while, step up to the plate as often as you can, and work with an experienced agent also. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about that we haven't addressed? I wish that anyone who's listening to this, all the success in the world in this business. I enjoy it, and there's a lot out there to be learned, and there's certainly opportunities for new people to join the field and be successful, and I wish them all the best. Well, Tom, you are a true entrepreneur. You see an opportunity, and you go for it. You possess the rare ability to recognize your own strengths and weaknesses. And you're willing to address your shortcomings by installing improved systems and hiring better suited team members. You are the driver, team leader, and creative force behind your team's phenomenal success. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent Interview of the Month Club. 
where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.